Oh, I finally asked him about the podcast. He said yes. <laughs> Baby, it's for like months. Welcome to the 39th episode, or the third creepy cast. Next week, we will be doing our double trouble. Please remember, people, in 13 weeks, uh, by 13 weeks, actually probably 12 by now, we do need your questions for our non-witchy other half. So my witchy fact is witches are mentioned in the Bible. The exact origin of witches is difficult to pinpoint because there are many different depictions of people who practiced magic. An extremely early documented mention of witches occurs in the Old Testament, Book 1 of Solomon. This uh, was thought uh, to be written somewhere between uh, 931 BCE and 721 BCE. The story tells of King Saul seeking help from the witch of Endor in order to contact prophet Samuel's spirit as he was dead which is being able to contact the dead may have originated from this story. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I like that. So, oh, not throwing the cards in the alcoholic beverage. I don't do that. No. Um, didn't realize that the um, vessel that I had my beverage in um, had that wide a um, mouth. Okay, so I'm using the same same deck. Nothing's changed. Today I have the Eight of Wands, and for those of you who do reverse, it is in reverse. For those of you who do this intuitively, disregard the meaning. The Eight of Wands, upright, is movement, fast-paced change, action, alignment, air travel. And reverse, it means delays, frustration, resisting change, and internal alignment. And this one actually called me out today because I am doing a lot of internal alignments and there have been a few delays and frustrations um, that I have had um, with working for the True North which is brand getting um, part of Stephanie's and my brainchild together. Yes. There have been some frustration and delays in that. I've been feeling stagnant. I agree. I agree. It's a damn retrograde that started like three days ago. It must be. Mercury in retrograde. Love that. Fuck you, bitch. (laughs) That was sarcasm. I clearly don't love that. No, no, no. I was saying fuck you, bitch, to Mercury in retrograde. Mm -mm, Don't do that. Oh, yeah, that's probably a bad idea. So I, today I am talking about um, Rolling Hills Asylum. 
located in um, the States. And I am talking about um, La Llorona. And I'm um, also talking about the Beck Hotel, uh, the Ottawa Jail Hostel. Yep. And Keg Mansion. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. I hope that's it. Yeah. All right. Let's get into this. Uh, in into this creepy cast. Yeah. All right. So um, I'll start off with my coworker's little story. Now this coworker is the one that's like um, super Catholic, who I would love to ha- for us to have on our podcast and have uh, a dialogue with. Um, she's amazing. Love her. Um, and, and as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, like me and her, like the opposites, uh, the opposite, like we're just the opposite. Um, so like, for example, like fall, she is like your basic, basic uh, girl with um, pumpkin spice latte and um, loves fall. And I, I love um, all the spooky parts of October <laughs> and fall. Um, so I, I was leaving work today and I looked at her and I was like, do you have any like, um, paranormal, um, experiences? Like, have you had any, any paranormal experiences? And she's like, well, not really. Um, there was this one time, uh, she was in her bedroom and she was lying down like to go to sleep and she heard her name clear as day being called out. And like she felt, and before her name was called, she felt like awful. Like something was wrong. Like there was something weird in the room. Like it was just, it was an awful um, kind of like energy. And she had just closed her eyes and she, but she hadn't fallen asleep. Like she was trying to. And she heard her name clear as day, called out. And she's like, and she doesn't swear. So she looks at me and she's like, and I said, what the flip? She's adorable. And, um, and it says that it, it says it again her name clear as day and um being very christian and extreme follower of christ and all that she was like "Uh uh-uh not happening and she so and so she said in a very loud and she's like in kind of like a commanding voice she's like "Uh uh-uh i'm a follower of christ you can't do that here and then suddenly like the energy cleared i'm glad and then (laughs) right she's like she's like because um, she feel and she feel these. She'll feel these instances where her faith is tested. She says whenever she feels like she's getting closer to God. That makes and then sense. she was telling me how it, how there's a lot of people, um, like a lot, of, a lot of like Catholic and Christian people who, when they are trying to become closer to God and they're studying and they're doing all this stuff, they'll feel these. Um, it's like as soon as they feel like they're getting closer. They feel like this. There's something trying to pull them back, and um, will they describe that as like the devil or demons trying to pull you back from God? And uh, and that was like her first instance instance of something like that happening. That was notably like paranormal. Well, I'm glad it went away because sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting because there was no other, she's no, hadn't never had anything happen in her house before. Well, like, never had anything in those happen. instances, they get 
angrier when you bring that kind of thing up. So I'm glad right. that when she brought it up, it went away because that could have turned out sometimes way worse. Mm-hmm. Well, she's also like really un- unwavering in her in, in her faith. So like, um, which which it's good that it did work out for her. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of the only like um, like friend story that I have. Uh, and then I have um, Rolling Hills Asylum, uh, located in East Bethany, New York, USA. Um, fun fact about this asylum, uh, it was used in the American Horror Story Asylum promotion videos. So the promotion like um, clips for the show, they were filmed, they filmed in different rooms in there. Uh, so before becoming uh, infamously known as the Rolling Hills Asylum and a widely documented hotbed of paranormal activity, the property was originally named the Genese, Genese County Poor Farm, often affectionately referred to as the Old County Home. Often resembling a reformatory, a poorhouse often housed orphan children, families destitute elderly, physically handicapped, mentally unstable, morally corrupt, even criminals. These institutions were situated on the grounds of a poor farm on which able-bodied residents were required to work. Such farms were common in the United States in the 19th and early 20th century. A poor house, sometimes referred to as an almshouse or asylum, was a government-run facility to, for the support and housing of dependent or needy persons, typically run by a local government ent- entity, such as county or mis- municipality, and institutions of this nature were widespread in the United States prior to the adoption of the social security programs in the 1930s. Uh, now, from what I understand, this place was, a, uh, was an orphanage turned poorhouse. Um, on December 4th, 1826, the uh, Guinnessy, and you know what, please correct me, I have no idea if I'm saying it right, county board of supervisors met in Bethany for the purpose of establishing a county poorhouse. A brick building, originally uh, a stagecoach tavern located near the corner of the Bethany Center Road and Raymond Road, was the site selected as it represented the geographical center of the county. Uh, because Wyoming uh, County wasn't established until 1841. This official announcement dated December 9th, 1826, appeared in an issue of the Batavia Times newspaper. Notice is hereby given that the Janice County Poorhouse will be ready for the reception of hoppers on the first day of January, 1827. The overseers of the poor, um, of the poor of the several towns of the County of Genesee are requested in all cases of removal of paupers to the county poorhouse to send with them their clothing, beds, bedding, and such other articles belonging to the paupers as may be necessary and useful to them. And the following um, were, a, were eligible for assistance at the poorhouse. Uh, habitual drunkards, lunatics, one who by disease, grief, or accident lost the use of reason to, or from old age, sickness or weakness, was so weak of mind as to be incapable of governing or managing their affairs. Paupers, a person with no means of income. State paupers, one who is blind, lame, old, or disabled with no income source, or a vagrant. In 1828, Genesee County constructed a stone building attached to the poorhouse for the confinement of lunatics 
and a repository for paupers committed for misconduct. The insane were also housed at the county home until 1887, when the Board of Supervisors agreed to send persons suffering with acute insanity elsewhere in the state. Uh, the Gnesi County Poor Farm, aka the County Home, was a self-sufficient working farm in wood spanning over 200 acres, providing food and fuel. Thus, the actual cost of the care for each person was low, about a dollar um, eight per day, per week, per residence, back in 1871. Residents were referred to as inmates, um, no matter why they were housed there, and those physically able-bodied would work the farm, and many actually built and made wares to sell to help offset some of the living cost expenses. Um, the raising of Holsteins, pigs, draft horses, chickens, and ducks, raising vegetables and fruit crops, canning jams, delis, meats, were all a part of the chores. Um, there was a bakery and even a wood shop where coffins were made for use as needed for, or, and for sale to local uh, mortuaries. For use uh, as needed. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the county would bury those who had no family and no and records indicate there was once, sorry, let me start that again. The county would bury those who had no family and re records indicate there was once a cemetery located on the property, but the particulars are almost non-existent. Uh, An 1886 proceeding states, the burying ground uh, we have improved by building a fence in front and grading and leveling the ground as much as could be done without injury to the graves. Um, the cemetery for the county poorhouse has faded, away, has faded away as the stones crumbled. The grass grew and the forest replanted. No one was around to care for those who had so long ago been forgotten. These people, though they were poor, ill, and sometimes abandoned, you deserve to be remembered. An actual cemetery registered or plot map has yet to be discovered. Sounds like an archaeology uh, good time. A memorial site was created in the Gnesi County Park, and on June 6, 2004, when five headstones dated from 1887 to 1888 were returned to the county, the Gnesi County historians dedicated a historical marker honoring those who died while living in the county home from 1827 until the facility was closed in 1974. Residents were then re relocated to new facilities in, in Batavia. Uh, and that was uh, like a complete history completed by um, uh, a historian named Susan L. Conklin of the Genesee County. Part of the people that were brought there uh, were unwed mothers, widows, orphans, mentally challenged, and elderly, and sometimes even the criminally insane. Uh, the staff did their best to keep unsafe patients away from the general population, but there were many problems. As a result, a solitary confinement cell was constructed in the building, and those who lived there were often referred to as inmates. The spirits of some of these disturbed souls are thought to inhabit the halls of Rolling Hills. And these are a couple of them. Um, the first one, his name is Roy. Uh, one tragic story involved an inmate named Roy. Roy suffered from autism, a physical deformity that left him with protruding facial features, large hands and feet, and a height of over seven feet. Roy was the son of a prominent banker and his physical appearance was an embarrassment to his family. At age 12, Roy was dropped at the Nisi County home and was left there until his death at age 62. Roy liked opera music and was generally kind. Today, his hulking shadow is still witnessed by visitors who report seeing him lurking throughout the building. 
Next is Nurse Emmy. Pardon? And lurking. Yeah, lurking. And you know what? On their website, you can uh, there's pictures of him, oh. like his uh, his shadow form. Yeah. That's cool. Nurse. Yeah. The next is Nurse Emmy, and she's located. So other personalities uh, weren't as harmless. In the infirmary wing, there was a nurse known for her cruelty, Emmy Altworth, better known as Nurse Emmy was hated and feared by staff and inmates. Rumors began circulating that Nurse Emmy was involved in the dark arts and was performing black magic and satanic rituals using the inmates there. Um, so Potter's Field, being a poorhouse when the inmates died, there was little or no money for proper burial. Over the decades, thousands were buried in Potter's Field on the property. Most of the graves were unmarked and the dead still lie below. Today, there is a monument in the nearby Genesee County Park that holds a few of the headstones from the facility. Besides the many ghosts, this monument is the only reminder of the people who died under this roof. So on their website, um, they have recordings. Um, yeah, they have recordings of, uh, and pictures of people who have seen things, found things. And I'm going to see if we can hear it. But yeah, there was a, quite a few ones. And that is all I have on Rolling Hills Asylum. Okie dokie. So as Steph and I are interchanging uh, this time around, which is not necessarily something we always do, but usually something we do on, you know, the 13 and 10 episodes. Um, I also have a co co-worker slash me story because we'll see why. So there is, I work in the hospitality industry. So I work at a front desk at a hotel. This hotel, I've talked about a couple of times. Stephanie has heard many a stories and you guys will hear many a stories because I seem to have them <laughs> every time I work. Um, so I, there's this, there's this door that goes and it doesn't look like a door, um, but it goes to the back office. It's like a, a, a false wall. And if we're alone by ourselves and we're trying to do something in the back, we will jam it open with like a doorstop. And so that we can hear if anybody comes to the front desk. A couple of times, I'll have had the door stop open, the door, for like hours. Like the door will have been open with this door stop for hours and it'll randomly close. It randomly close. The other day, my very skeptical coworker, who kind of understands, but like also doesn't believe certain things I say and says, oh, it could have been this instead. Had that very thing happened. Love to a good skeptic. 
right? So it had that very thing happen to him. So he had jammed this door open so that he could work partially in the back, still here out, still here outside, and and get things done. And he had this jammed open for about four or five, four or five hours before it finally he was finally sitting at the desk and it shut on him. And I was like, I'm not blowing smoke. I told you. And then after we had this lovely confrontation, our, so. Pause. Is it happening at the same time every day? No. Stop. I was going to say, if it's happening at the same time every, like every day, it could be residual. That is the shadow person on the stairwell okay that is the shadow person on the stairwell is every every day at three o'clock in the morning this thing has only happened a couple of times to a couple of us now there's one more thing that happened the other day that threw me for several loops again i was the overnight shift nobody else in the building and the way our shredder works, it's slightly broken so that even if you sh- shred it and it stops shredding because it doesn't sense any more paper, later on, about like 10 minutes later, it will start up again. So all of us have this habit that we turn off the shredder after it's done shredding. So I had shredded something and I turned the shredder off per usual, and I go back in, so this this is in the side office this time, and the shredder is going. After I know for a fact that I turned it off and didn't just let it go through and like let it stop on its own. Yeah, I don't like that. I didn't like that either. I told the ghosts to fuck off and I left the room. (laughs) See, what if if my coworker had just said, you know what, fuck off, I'm trying to sleep. Or that would have been effective. I don't know. No. I've just had enough of them to... fucking with me, so I just said fuck off and I left the room. Exactly. So the next one, because Steph did two, so I'm gonna do a non-person who I know related. Um, so haunted Simcoe. <laughs> she did not like that. So haunted Simcoe, the Hey, Haunted Simcoe again. Haunted Simcoe? The Beck Hotel. Sorry, the Beck House. No? Mm. Nothing? Just didn't like being ignored? Okay. Haunted Skim- Simcoe, the Beck House. So there's quite a few rumors that swirl around the, pe- the Penetanguishene Centennial Museum, formerly the town's general store. And now it's time to pay a visit to the town's nexus of the supernatural, the Beck House. Home to Charles Beck, his wife, and nine children, the Beck House is one of the oldest standing buildings in the area, and it's no secret around town that the former owners haven't quite left it behind. Visitors and residents of the house have reported lights flickering, strange noises, and have uh, and have seen some... Oh, wait and 
Some have even felt a slight tug on their blankets when they get into bed. Perhaps a mat uh, matronly mother tucking them in. While many of the rooms in the back house are home to permanent residents, one of the one of the coolest things about this haunted house is you can actually rent one of the top floor apartments for the night on Airbnb. If a short visit with the supernatural isn't enough for you, maybe a whole night will give you the encounter you've been looking for. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, and that actually came from Barry360.com. Ah, close to home. Yeah. Punditanguishing is close to home. So my last little, and I put this in quotes, little ghost story, and then I'm going to leave it off for Stephanie, uh, because then we both have some, some big ghost stories, um, is the Keg Mansion. The Keg Mansion is a former residential building that is presently used as a location for the Keg Restaurant in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Again, <laughs> close to home. The building was initially known as Euclid Hall, a prominent downtown heritage building located at 515 Jarvis Street. The building was originally built in 1867 for Arthur McMaster, nephew of Canadian Senator and banker William McMaster. In 1915, the building was bequeathed to the Macy family to Victoria College, a federal college of the University of Toronto. In 1976, the keg repurposed the building to serve as a restaurant. History. <clears throat> the house was originally built, like we said, in 1867 by Arthur McMaster. At the time, Jarvis Street was one of the wealthiest parts of Toronto and the street was lined by large manors. The house was set back from the street and surrounded by large gardens. The former house has a neutral color palette with pops of color as in the green grass accents over the windows and wrench shingles on the turrets. The hall uses the soft deep colors to contrast the hard crisp edges. As a residence, it consisted, consisted of 26 rooms and 17 fireplaces with a stable and large brick carriage house in the back with significant alterations to interior having been made since its era as a dwelling, the interior is now very different from the original. In 1882, it was purchased by Hart Macy and his wife, who had just returned to Toronto from Cleveland. The Macy's renovated the house and added a turret, veranda, and greenhouse, but the original Gothic facade was not uh, significantly altered. Hart Macy's son bought homes surrounding the manor. To the north, his son Chester D. Macy built the home where Hart's grandchildren, Vincent and Raymond, were raised. As the area became more urban and various commercial operations moved into the area, the Macy's decided to leave. The building was then bequeathed to the University of Toronto's Victoria College in 1915. The manor served as the first home of Toronto radio station CFRB in the 1920s and was home to an art gallery for several decades until 1960. It later was bought by uh, Jules Fine and became a restaurant named Jules Mansion. 
with the Bombay Bicycle Club existing on the top floor. After suffering a stroke, the grounds were sold off and the greenhouse demolished and replaced with a service station. In 1976, it became home to the Keg restaurant and it was re renamed the Keg Mansion. This mansion at Wellesley and Jarvis Street. Um, this was also, like I said, it was purchased by the Macy's, which are the same Macy's that were responsible for Macy Hall. Lillian Macy, who eventually took over the household, she died in 1915. She was adored by her staff. And as the story goes, one of the maids in the mansion took her death very hard. It's said that the maid killed herself by hanging her body and her body by hanging and her body was found swinging above the foyer. Ever since the maid's spirit and other ghosts continue to haunt the mansion. If you believe in ghost stories, get a load of these and creepy encounters some customers claim to have experienced at the Keg Mansion. Melanie Ellerabi was dining with her husband when she says she encountered two different spirits. She was dining as she was dining, she said she felt cold wisps on her arm that gave her goosebumps. She felt the light touches move onto her fingers and eventually the back of her neck. Then a flash across my mind of a woman. She was young, blonde hair with a wide face and blue eyes. She wore her hair swept up and wore a light colored blouse with a high neck and a light colored skirt. In the flash, she was standing behind me. She wrote in a testimonial. She continued to feel the woman's presence throughout dinner. Laura D claims to have seen ghosts of children at the restaurant. Children are not allowed in the keg at night. And so she thought it was odd when she saw a boy with dark hair sitting on one of the staircases. She walked past him towards the bar. When she looked back, he had vanished. During another visit, she and a friend were at the second floor bar when they both heard the creepy sound of children's feet pitter-pattering down the stairs. When they looked to see who it was, there was no one there. Another guest was in the woman's washroom alone at the Keg Mansion, but insists she felt another presence with her the entire time. I came out and looked to the stairs. A woman dressed in a dark, beautiful old-fashioned dress looked at me. I even said hi to her when walking past and down the stairs. I felt weird about it. So I asked the host. He said it was only four male servers that night. No waitresses and definitely no one in an old fashioned dress. And both of those were from, well, the first part was from Wikipedia and the second one was from narcity.com. I love Narcity. I love that website. Um, though, Brooke, I think um, it's actually, it's Massey Hall, not Macy, it's Massey, the Massey family. Because it's, yeah, the thing, place in Toronto is called Massey Hall. Okay, so yeah. There are, there are various variations of saying it, but Massey Hall is actually Massey Hall. So I'm going to go with Stephanie's yeah. pronunciation on this one. Woo! Yeah, because it, it, I mean, it looks like it would be um, pronounced that. that. Stephanie is correct. So, Note one for the, uh, for the book. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> uh, so I'm now going to be talking about uh, La Llorona. Ooh. Um, also known as Llorona. Yeah. Llorona. Pardon? Just the name. 
right? Um, also, it translates to weeping the weeping woman. So uh, La Llorona, which she was christened the name Maria, which is a very common um, Spanish name and European name, really, um, was born to a peasant family in a humble village. Her startling beauty captured the attention of both the rich and the poor men of the area. She was said to have spent her days in her humble peasant surroundings, but in the evenings, she would don her best white gown and thrill the men who admired her in the local fandangos. The young men anxiously waited for her arrival, and she reveled in the attention that she received. However, La Llorona had two small sons who made it difficult for her to spend her evenings out, and often she left them alone while she cavorted with the gentlemen during the evenings. One day, the two small boys were found drowned in the river. Some say they drowned through, the her, through her neglect. Others say they may have died by her own hand. Now, that's one version of the story. Uh, another version, another legend says that La Llorona was a caring woman full of, full of life and love who married a wealthy man who lavished her with gifts and attention. However, after she bore him two, two sons, he began to change, returning to a life of womanizing and alcohol, often leaving her for months at a time. He seemingly no longer cared for the beautiful Maria, even talking about leaving her to marry a woman of his own wealthy class. When he did return home, it was only to visit his children, and the devastated Maria began to feel resentment towards her towards the boys. One evening, as Maria was strolling with her two children on a shady pathway near the river, her husband came by in a carriage with an elegant lady beside him. He stopped and spoke to his children, but ignored Maria, and then drove the carriage down the road without looking back. After seeing this, Maria went into, the, into a terrible rage, and turning against her children, she seized them and threw them into the river. As they disappeared downstream, she realized what she had done and ran down the bank, bank to save them. But it was too late. Maria broke down into inconsolable grief, running down the streets, screaming and waiting. The beautiful La Llorona mourned them day and night. During this time, she would not eat and walked along the river in her white gown, searching for her boys, hoping they would come back to her. She cried endlessly as she roamed the riverbanks, and her gown became soiled and torn. When she continued to refuse to eat, she grew thinner and appeared taller until she looked like a walking skeleton. Still a young woman, she finally died on the banks of the river. Now, another version of that one in particular says that she um, realized what she had done and either threw herself into the river or killed herself like um, moments after. Not long after her death, her relentless spirit began to appear walking the banks of the Santa Fe River uh, when darkness fell. Her weeping and wailing became a curse of the night and people began to be afraid to go out after dark. She was said to have been seen drifting between the trees along the shoreline or floating on the current with her long white gown spread out upon the rivers, uh, upon the waters. On many dar a dark night, people would see her walking along the riverbank and crying for her children. And so they no longer spoke of her as Maria, but rather La Llorona, the weeping woman. Children were warned not to go out in the dark, for La Llorona might snatch them from to their deaths in the drowning or the flowing waters. Though the legends vary, the apparition is said to act without hesitation or mercy. The tales of her cruelty depends on the virgin, version of the legend you hear. Some say that she kills in, uh, indiscriminately, taking men, women, and children, 
whoever is foolish enough to get close enough to her. Others say that she is very barbaric and kills only children, dragging them screaming to a watery grave. When um, Patricio Lugan was a boy, so this was someone, this was a story that someone had um, sent in. He and his family saw her on a creek between um, Mora and Guadalupe, New Mexico. As the family was sitting outside talking, they saw a tall, thin woman walking along the creek. She then seemed to float over the water, started up the hill, and vanished. However, just moments but later, she reappeared much closer to them and then disappeared again. The family looked for footprints and finding none, had no doubt that the woman had, they had seen was La Llorona. She has been seen along many rivers across the entire Southwest. The legend has become part of the Hispanic culture everywhere. Part of the legend is that those who do not treat their families well will see her and she will teach them a lesson. Another story involved a man by the name of Epifiano Garcia, who was an outspoken boy who often argued with his mother and father. After a heated argument, he, along with his brothers, uh, Carlos and Augustine, decided to leave the ranch on uh, Ojo de la Vaca to head toward the Villa Real de Santa Fe. However, when they were along their way, they were visited by a tall woman wearing a black tapello and a black net over her face. Two of the boys were riding in the front of the wagon and the spirit appeared on the seat between them. She was silent and continued to sit there until Epifiano finally turned the horses around and headed back home, at which time she said, I will visit you again someday when you argue with your mother. Creepy. Um, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the tall wailing spirit has been seen repeatedly in the Piera building, which is the Public Employees Retirement Association, which is built on land that was once an old Spanish Indian graveyard and is near the Santa Fe River. Many people who have been employed there tell that hearing cries resound, uh, resounding through the halls and feeling unseen hands pushing them all on the stairwells. La Llorona has been heard um, at night wailing next to rivers by many and her wanderings have grown wider following Hispanic people wherever they go. The movements have been traced throughout the southwest and as far north as Montana on the banks of the Yellowstone River. Other legends say she stabbed her children and threw their bodies into the river. La Llorona has also been conflated with La Malinche, which is Cortez translator, Cortez's translator um, and concubine. As such, she is often as an indigenous woman jilted by a Spanish lover. However, there are many similar European and old world motifs that she could also be linked to. The white woman of the Germanic and Slavic tradition, the Lorielli, and of course, the Banshee. The trope of the barbarian girl who kills her children after being betrayed by her lover and discarded for a woman of higher status or more appropriate race also has roots in the Greek tradition in the legends of Medea and Jason. Uh, and it's strange that such a pervasive myth could, could have such different features, but still be known by the same name. The variations in the folk stories seem to be geographical, with different regions having their own slightly different versions of the Wailing Woman. In addition, the legend has changed over time, seemingly to reflect the so uh, socio-political climate, but uh, just as a source will often tell us more about the author than the subject. Uh, and we can glean a lot about the storyteller's point of view when examining the development of this particular legend. It is not until the late 19th and early 20th century that the folklore story can be found even in print. <laughs> However, when we look at them, 
far more finding an official, far from, from finding an official version, you can clearly see that many elements of La Llorona's story change over time. When examining the history of La Llorona and trying to find the origins, it is evident that it has pre-Hispanic origins. A few Aztec goddesses come to mind, such as um, the Cuyucatal, which is the snake woman, described as a savage beast and an evil omen who appeared in white and he would walk at night weeping and wailing. She's also described as an omen of war. Um, another is the Catlacu. She is the snake. She of the snaky skirt was the mother of uh, another uh, Aztec god of war and is described as the ugliest and dirtiest that one could possibly imagine. Her face was so black and covered with filth that she looked like something straight out of hell. She waits for her son by, to return for her or to her from war and weeps and mourns for him while he is gone. The stories of both of these goddesses have some aspects of La Llorona. Uh, it still misses the key component of infanticide. Um, there's a third goddess that might fit the bill better and her name is Chalchiltoklu, the, the jade skirted one. She was goddess of the waters and the elder sister of the rain god Talik. She is described as one who was feared and caused terror. She is said to drown people and overturn boats. Ceremonies in honor of the rain gods included, um, including Kalchiklu, uh, involved a sacrifice of children. These sacrificial victims were bought, bought, um, brought from their mothers, are bought from their mothers. And the more the children cried, the more successful the sacrifice was thought to have been. Um, so she obviously has lots of origins. And people have used her to um, um, use the insanity plea in Mexico as well. This story reminds me, and I know I'm being a nerdy witch when I say this, but it reminds yeah. me of the very first episode of Supernatural where oh yeah yeah where the dad goes missing and it's that woman who drowned her two kids and now what movie sorry what movie it was supernatural oh very first i'm going back a ways it's yeah season so we're going back like 15 years here and it was the very first episode of Supernatural where Dean tells Sam that, you know, their dad's missing. And yeah. He was out on this one specific hunt um, that was this woman who had drowned her two kids um, and her husband was unfaithful. And then she threw herself off of a bridge. And now in death, she punishes uh unfaithful like she'll ask for a ride men yeah i remember the episode like i can i can picture it um so there's been so many like in incarnations of la llorona in like media one of them obviously being the most recent la llorona the legend of la, la llorona um from 2018 uh, another one, less obvious, is um, the horror movie Mama. Love that movie. Uh, I rewatched it the other day after looking at <laughs> um, But so there was a Mexican woman um, named Juana 
uh, Lasia attempted to kill her seven children by throwing them into the Buffalo Bayou in Houston, Texas in 1986. A victim of domestic violence, she was apparently trying to end her suffering and that of her children, uh, which two of them did die. And during an, during an interview, she declared that she was La Llorona. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah. She definitely is a is a kind of a creepy um sad spirit, right? Yeah. Um definitely a banshee type. Yeah. And there's there's some legends that say um if you if you like and they use the legend in, in the movie, um, the most recent one, that if you see her, you're cursed. Which is very you're similar cursed. to the banshee that if you hear her, someone you're cursed. Yeah, someone needs yeah. to die. Yeah. Or is about to die. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I have on my, you know, now. Ooh. So I still have one left. Um, and that is the Carlton County Gold to the HI Ottawa Jail Hostel. So, Ottawa's first jail opened in 1842 in the basement of the city's new courthouse on land donated by the prominent Ottawa, Ottawaan? Ottawaan? Nicholas Sparks. The subject of constant criticism, it was replaced with 20, within 20 years by a new standalone uh, gale built next door. The contrast between this spacious, airy building and the wretched and poisonous basement now used as a gale is sufficiently striking. The two buildings may be taken as not inappropriate types of the old prison system, heretofore pursued in Canada and the new prison system. 19th century prison reform. The new Carlton uh, County Gale opened in 1862 and was designed by architect H.H. Horsey on the principles of 19th century prison reform. A new emphasis was placed on the reformation of prisoners and the state housing of the accused. This was chiefly accomplished through the classification and separation of inmates, keeping those who might have a corrupting influence on others separate from each other by physically placing them in different areas of the gale. For example, men and women, the convicted and the accused, as well as the young and the old, were all ideally kept apart. Underlying these new ideas, however, was the continuing role of the prison to punishment criminals and to deter those inclined to crime. The Gale's execution of this dual role was quite obvious in the former function and actual confinement of criminals. The role it played in deterring crime, however, was much less obvious and was reflected in the building's architecture. The Carleton County Gale was built to be imposing 
massive, and impressive. Its simple and symmetrical uh, Georgian style combined with very minimal detailing, accenting the building's uh, solidity and placed it on a level with the courthouse, each representing an equally important component of the law. Beyond the building's daunting presence, however, its permanent gallows remained a constant and very grim reminder to the world, the would-be criminal of possible outcome of life of a life of vice. The increase in prisoners since the gale after the new building's construction appears to confirm the role it played in determining crime, in deterring crime. According to the 1863 annual report of the Board of Inspectors of Asylums Prisons, the total number of prisoners last year in the new gale was 232 as against 416 in the year 1861 in the old gale. The report goes on to say that at Ottawa, as elsewhere, prisoners all objected to the new gales. They liked the old gales much better. Appalling living conditions. Notwithstanding the Carleton uh, County Gale being declared the model gale of its time, it is quite possible the prisoners' dislike of it had more to do with the facility's awful conditions than its imposing and fearful structure. The gale was very, had very little success classifying its prisoners and made few attempts at rehabilitation. There was very little for prisoners to do. If one was lucky, they might chop wood or clear snow. Otherwise, they spent their time in the corridors of the gale waiting for the night to come so they could wait in their cells for the next day. The cells, cells themselves were small, uncomfortable, and unsanitary with no heating, lighting, ventilation, or toilets. These appalling and inhumane conditions persisted throughout the gale's history and use. It was finally closed in 1972 and its occupants transferred to the new Ottawa Carleton Regional Detention Center in Black, uh, Blackburn Hamlet. Notwithstanding it's been considered unsuitable for prisoners, the Gale topped a list of potential sites for a new year-round hostel in Ottawa. It was believed that with some imagination and renovation, it could be turned into a friendly and welcoming hostel, and alas, it has become today from a jail to a hostel. Initially, the Canadian Youth Hostel Association uh, proposal to use the gale was only for two cell block floors and a portion of the governor's mansion. The remaining space was to be rented by, out by other tenants who would help share the cost of bringing the old building up to modern health and safety codes. Lack of funds, however, resulted in, uh, in the other tenants pulling out of the renovation scheme and leaving it to the hospital to renovate the whole thing on its own. Using money received from grants and fundraising, as well as donated materials, goods, and labor, the focus was to bring the building up to code to provide essential services to its guests and to bring the place up with a fresh coat of colorful paint. The transformation of the building from cold and dreary gale to bright and welcoming hostel had begun and was only completed hours before the hostel's official opening. The hostel opened to travelers in, on August 2nd, 1973, marked by a visit from Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh.
hosteliers, uh, slept dormitory style, and the prison bunk locked corridors with the narrow cell used to store their personal belongings. The cost for a bed for members was $2 for the first night and $1 each additional night. A second fundraising campaign. By the time the cost of the bed rose to $3.75 a night, a new renovations initiative and fundraising campaign had begun. It was 1981, and with a sizable Ontario grant in hand, the Nicholas Street Jail Hostel sought to raise $110,000 to put towards preventing and up, uh, preserving and upgrading the now designated Heritage Building. Besides improvements to heating, lighting, ventilation, and plumbing, the hostel intended to make use of the cells by joining several of them together to create semi-private accommodations for its guests and to increase its total bed count. To promote the hostel's fundraising campaign, renowned Canadian author and journalist Pierre uh, Burton toured the jail, referring to it as a living history lesson. He claimed heritage buildings are really the only way we have today to see and feel the past, an ongoing source of pride and obstacles. The use of the new, uh, sorry, the use of the old Carleton County Jail as the Nicholas Street Jail Hostel, now the HI Ottawa Jail Hostel, has and continues to be a source of pride and of obstacles. It is continuing efforts to improve the services and experience it offers its guests from renovations, upgrades, tours, reenactments, and events. The hostel must the hostel must continually take into account the impact upon the building as it is a historical artifact, albeit a very large one. Operating a hostel in a heritage building poses a series of unique challenges to not only respect and preserve its historic character, but also to maintain its relevance to today's travelers. For good reasons, HI Ottawa Hostel, sorry, for good reasons, HI Ottawa Jail is probably definitely haunted. Uh, Here's the thing. What? Here's the thing. We went there. Yes, we went there. We took lots of pictures. We did the ghost walk. It is haunted. Not most, not, not maybe, no, but it is. <laughs> this I was, I was literally just trying to find the pictures. I have some I'll pull from my Katimovic trip. This time of year, the leaves start to fall and HI Ottawa Jail makes online lists around the world about the most haunted buildings in Canada. But is it actually? To recap, the building spent over a hundred years as a jail, jail and was even an execution site, some viewable to the public. When a new jail opened up in the city, the Canadian Youth Hostel Association, or CYHA, bought the building, spruced it up, and opened it as a hostel the following year. For over 45 years, HI Ottawa Jail has been welcoming guests from all over the world, but is it actually haunted? Here are four pretty convincing reasons that this person thinks it's definitely possible. Maybe, but most likely certainly haunted, they think. 
One, it's got a gruesome history. If you haven't yet joined one of the hostel tours, which are free and run every morning at 11 a.m., you might not know all the gritty details of this former jail. Here's the Coles notes. The Carleton County Gale opened in 1862 with very little in the way of amenities. The windows were open to the elements, leaving prisoners exposed to frigid Ottawa winters and sweltering summers. And as most of us Canadians know, it is a very big difference between summer and, and winter in Canada, especially in Ontario. Today, you can sleep in a prisoner cell about one meter wide by three meters long, and plenty of rooms still have their original iron bar doors. You can also opt to stay in the standard room over in the guards' quarters. You can still see a solitary confinement cell in the basement, complete with the original rings used to shackle prisoners face down to the floor. And perhaps creepiest of all are the original gallows, once used for public hangings. Yep, still there, complete with a replica noose. There's also what appears to be an unofficial gallows over the back staircase, so it's hard to say how many prisoners were executed at the jail but more certainly perished as a result of the harsh conditions. Spoiler, you can't see ghosts without dead people, and this building made plenty of those. The most notorious inmate in the jail's history was Patrick J. Uh, Whelan, who was imprisoned and hanged before a crowd of 5,000 onlookers for the murder of politician Darcy McGee in 1869, though he venomously denied his involvement until his death. His body was supposed to be sent to Montreal, but was instead buried on the jail property. So not only is PJ here probably a resident ghost, he's probably pissed too, and looking to vent some frustration. Two, it feels like home to ghosts. It's comfy and cozy now, sure, but when the CYHA bought the building, they deliberately left a lot of aforementioned jail elements intact, partially to create a cool piece to stay, place to stay, but also to honor the history of the building. Perhaps less uh, deliberate was leaving the place feeling exactly like home to all the ghosts lingering inside. What kind of ghost is going to pack up and leave the place when his old cell is right down the hall and the familiar creak of the death row, Flora accompanies your 2 a.m. creak stroll, just like it did on execution day. There's got to be a bit of comfort in the old familiar chill of iron bars. It's all still there, and if I were a ghost, I'd be happy to hang around my old haunts, rather than having to figure out my way around some new unfamiliar building I decided to spook. Ghosting ain't easy. Three, bodies were found there. When what is now the hostel's parking lot was partially dug to build the Mackenzie King Bridge, that rem the remains of 140 bodies were found buried here. And only dug up a corner, and they only dug up a corner of it. Who knows how many other bodies are still hanging out in the grounds around the hostel. So there's a hefty, repository of departed souls just out the side door of the building. In other words, there's basically three real fills of ghosts here. Four, trust the reviews. 
Most guests report little more than just a creepy feeling overnight, especially if they took the hostel tour that morning. But more than a few have reported seeing actual ghosts. There's some consistency to the stories. There's been more than one report of a ghost sitting or standing at the foot of guests' beds at night, sometimes reading a Bible. There have also been sightings of Patrick J. Whelan inside his cell at night or wandering the dark corridor along guest room. Here are just a few actual reviews the hostel has received. Great hostel, but the ghosts kept messing with the entrance door. Spooky as fuck. Beautiful place. Ghosts wouldn't leave me alone. Loved humming to me. Such an amazing experience. We'll definitely come back. Thank you. I do not believe in ghosts, nor do the friend, nor does the friend that I was traveling with. However, at 1 a.m., my friend woke up screaming, let me go, and said she felt like someone was holding her arm, and I wasn't anywhere near her, and there was no one else in the room. Let me tell you, you can't fake that kind of reaction. Highly recommended. All in all, despite apparent ghosts, this hostel is a great place to stay here in Ottawa. It's haunted, but not in a bad way. Ghosts are super quiet. An eerie experience. That was overall pleasant. The ghosts don't bother you too much. So yeah, this person's convinced HI Ottawa Jail is absolutely, probably haunted, but the ghosts actually seem kind of nice. You'll just have to go there yourself to find out for sure. And that's uh, from HIHostel.ca. And I would like so to confirm these people's sightings because both Steph and I have been there a few times and plan to go back to refresh our memory. Yes. Um, my, the last time I was there was 10, almost 11 years ago now. God, I'm old. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was uh, doing a, a volunteer program called Katimovic. Um, that goes. Hi, yes, Katimovic. That goes to three, di three different locations in Canada, and we just so happened to be doing three months in actually a little French suburb of Ottawa called Vanier. And we decided, <laughs> as a group, to do the ghost walk tour of Ottawa. One of those locations that we ended up going was the the jail hostel, and it I do have pictures, so I will try to find all of the ones that I'm able to post, and I will post it on the Facebook page. But we did so we did the top floor is no longer available for overnight stays because it was death row. And yes. Yes, and so we got to see Death Row. We got to see the unofficial hanging spot, and we also which I took pictures of. That I took pictures of, and we also saw the and I saw someone hanging from that unofficial hanging spot, and we got to take pictures of the actual gallows. Yes, we did. So. It was all around there, and I felt. I just can't believe I can't pin this photo. Touched my shoulder a couple of times. Now that was the last time. Steph and I were there together, I believe. Yeah. 
And I think I probably put nail marks in Stephanie's arm the amount of time yeah. something touched me. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely have photos from the Katimovic trip. Um, I definitely want to do it again with just Stephanie because mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be fun. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe just stay at the hostel. Take the boys. Stay at the hostel. Yeah, we never got to stay at the hostel. We just did the uh, walking tour of Ottawa. Yes. So I would like to stay at the hostel. Probably with the boys. Yeah. Um, but I can definitely confirm that something... So I remember a story, and I don't know if I made this up, or it was actually a story told to us by the guide. But one of the, and I don't remember the name of the inmate, but according to sources, there was an inmate that hang, had to be hanged two or three times for it to take. Yeah. Because they hanged him the first time. And he was still alive. Yeah. <laughs> so they had to hang him the second time. And I'm not sure if that's the one that took. Or they had to hang him a third time. But man, this guy just wouldn't die. <laughs> I understand. He wanted to live. But that's all I actually had for you on the... You know, jail <sighs> hostel. Yeah. And uh, just for those people who like, don't know, I think HI stands for Hostel Inter Hostels International or Youth yeah. Hostels International, something like that. But I guess that's all we have for this creepy cast. Um, do check out, uh, I will try to find as many pictures as I can of that hostel experience. Um, so do check those out. I will post those on our Facebook page and you can find those at True North Witches. Uh, you can also catch us out on Twitter at True North Witches. You can always email us, which I'm sad that you guys didn't for this creepy cast, but always email us. We've got our one year coming up, so message us any questions you have for the boys, um, our non-witchy other half, um, at truenorthwitches at gmail.com. I do also realize that we neither of us did a you know weird thing our non-witchy other halves have said. But I really haven't had anything this week. Never mind. But I will try to get those. I'll look those pictures up. Those are quite a few years old. But we'll look up those uh, those photos and get those into you. Um, but like I said, you can always email us. So email us at truenorthwitches at gmail.com. You can check us out on TikTok at truenorthwitches. You can find us on YouTube so that we can maybe start doing some YouTube lives up in here at True maybe. North Witches. On Instagram at True North Witches. Check us out our Patreon at True North Witches in the search bar. But then if you wanted to look at us, we're patreon.com forward slash TNW podcast. 
Um, you can also find us on our website, www.truenorthwitches at uh, no, dot com. I wasn't at was your dad. all going to say it like a website. Uh, Try that again. www.truenorthwitches.com And uh, we're also still in the works. I know we've been saying it, but we have something in the works coming up for you guys. So take keep up keep an eye out for that and uh, we will see you next week in our double trouble episode uh, which is in publication. Yes. And uh, you have a wonderful week witches. I hope you had an amazing inbox for those of you that Yes. And we will definitely see you next week. Bye witches. Bye. Thank you.